Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see all your smiling faces. So those of you who are here because you're on vacation, welcome. We're glad to have you here. And those of you online who are also on vacation, we're glad to have you join us as well. So thanks for coming, and we're here to worship the Lord. If you're able, why don't you stand and let's begin our service by singing a song of heaven, a hymn of heaven. Upon the one who bled to 
Well, good to be with you this morning. For those of you who are visiting this morning, vacationing here, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just glad to have you with us this morning at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Just a couple of announcements before we kind of continue on in our, our worship service. Last Sunday, I introduced kind of a book we're going to go through in a number of small groups this coming fall. Um, that book is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Um, and I was really encouraged last week by the number of you who um, replied with interest in being in that group. Um, and so if you are interested and didn't respond last week, there are cards on the tables outside in the back just to uh, mark and express your interest. And you can drop those in the offering boxes that are on the back wall. Um, one kind of need we still have is people who are willing to lead a group. We have a decent number of hosts and people who are interested, but people who actually lead the discussion in the small groups use a few more of those and so like we have a, a DVD that will walk through the bulk of the discussion like your job as a leader is kind of to facilitate discussions if that's something you're interested in um, I'd love to talk to you more about that and what that could look like um, so next Sunday we will start kind of our full fall ministry with Sunday school after the service for kids and um, cross training a, a kind of sermon discussion in here after the service um, if we're looking forward to that, we're excited for that. Uh, one need we have kind of related to that is um, there's a, a decent number of three- and four-year-olds, especially three-year-olds this year. Um, and so looking for like just a, an extra person or a couple extra people to serve in that classroom just as an extra set of hands along with Sue Beth Gustafson, our, our teacher in that classroom. Um, and just a couple other things. Um, so following Saturday, um, September 18th, we'll have a kind of church fall gathering, kind of a potluck at uh, the Russell's farm. Uh, there are details about that uh, on the back of the bulletin, but that'll be Saturday the 18th at 3 o'clock. We just invite you to come and enjoy time together as a church family and also bring a dish to share. Right. So with all that, would you, would you pray with me? Father, we come each of us who has walked through these doors, it comes in a different, different place mentally, different place spiritually, different place physically. But we all come and gather together as your people in this place. I pray for each of us gathered here, wherever we're at, that you would, you would work in each of our lives to show us more of who you are, to draw us closer to Yourself to conform us more and more into the image of Your Son. I pray that any, any distractions, any worries that have been making at our minds throughout this week could take a back burner for a moment as we come before You as the God of the universe and we sing praise to You through song as we hear your word. God, would our attention this morning or our focus be on bringing you glory and learning from you. And for those of us who are here who are going through hard times, whether that's physically or mentally or spiritually, pray that you would, as we focus on you, that you would work in each of our lives too to bring healing where it's needed, to bring 
comfort and peace and perseverance where it's needed. You would, you would draw us all closer to yourself even as we walk through trials and hardships. And God, as your church gathered throughout the world this Sunday morning, I pray that you would, you would be with each of them, especially those in hard places, dangerous places that you give them um, confidence in, in your goodness and you give them boldness to to hear and preach your word even amidst the hard circumstances. We, we thank you that we are able to freely gather here in this place and worship you. And will we not take that for granted? Will we use it well to bring you honor and glory this morning as we worship you? In Jesus' name, amen. So this next worship set is uh, going to focus on God's grace. We know that in the Bible, the meaning of the word grace is not getting from God what our sins deserve. But that's often a bit abstract and academic. So how often in your day-to-day life does God extend grace to you? What does grace look like? when God extends it to you? What difference should it make as we relate to God? So to start us off, we're going to watch a short clip from the current streaming series, The Chosen, that will put flesh and blood on the concept of grace. Let me just real quickly, as an aside, give a plug for The Chosen. Uh, It makes the story of Jesus come alive by showing real people, his disciples, living really lives, and God came and chose them and changed their lives. Um, it's, it's free, and there are 18 episodes available now, so you can even binge it if you want. So let me stage, set the stage for this clip, and I'm going to read this so I won't forget any details. First of all, this scene is a fictionalized backstory, and I think the writers put it into the series specifically to personify the concept of grace that is so key to all of the Bible, and especially the New Testament. And as you will see, it's an extremely powerful personification. As you, remember, as you may remember from a clip that I showed some time ago, Jesus sought out the demon-possessed Mary Magdalene where she was in a gambling den, and he called her to himself and healed her from the demons that tormented her. And so she became one of those that traveled with Jesus along with his growing band of disciples. So just prior to the scene we're going to see, she has a relapse to her former life, specifically gambling and excessive alcohol. So Jesus sends Peter and Matthew to find her. And the clip opens when Jesus' mother accompanies Mary Magdalene to face the music with Jesus. But the first words you'll hear Jesus say stem from the fact that he has just learned that his cousin, John the Baptizer, has just been arrested by Herod and put into a maximum security prison. So like Mary Magdalene, you and I mess up. And we seem to do that quite regularly, wouldn't you agree? We all have our persistent sins that we struggle to overcome. So as you watch this, put yourself in Mary's shoes and visually experience the grace that God has extended to you. It's not you quite a lot going on right now. (laughs) 
so it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm... I'm so ashamed. You redeemed me and I just threw it all away. Well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? Yes. I owe you everything. But I just don't think I can do it. Do what? Live up to it. Repay you. How could I leave? How could I go back to the place I was? And I didn't even... I didn't even come back on my own. They had to come get me. I just can't live up to it. Well, that's true. <laughs> but you don't have to. I just want your heart. The Father just wants your heart. Give us that which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry.
stand if you wish. Run. 
Father, we are prone to forget that what we just sang is true, that really every hour, every moment we need you, that nothing we do is ultimately in our own power, but it's because of your gift of life you have given us and that you continue to give us. Let us continue to trust you and acknowledge our dependence upon you as we go about our lives. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we kind of jump into the sermon this morning, I wanted to give you a little peek ahead into kind of where we're headed in terms of sermons and preaching. So we've been we've been making our way through the book of Luke over the past well, really since last fall. We've been taking breaks here and there along the way. So we did ten weeks, kind of to start out Luke. Then we took a break and went through some key moments in Genesis. Then we did eight more weeks in Ruth, and then took a break and went through. Or eight more weeks in Luke, and then took a break and went through the book of Ruth. And now this morning's sermon will be the 13th sermon in kind of this section of Luke. And so starting next week, we're going to take another little break. Today's sermon leads us to another kind of natural breaking point in the book. We'll take a little break from Luke, and then for the following few weeks, we're going to spend a while in a number of the Psalms. Not every Psalm, obviously, but we're going to hit a number of the Psalms over the next few weeks. So I thought I was thinking about that, that series of the book of Psalms, kind of maybe what to call it and all these things. Like I googled Psalm Sermon Series um, just to see what other churches have done with Psalms. Because like, I'm not that creative when it comes to naming stuff, right? And so I thought I'd just see what other people did. And like tons of churches this past summer did a series called Summer in the Psalms. And, and I just really realized I blew my chance for that nice alliteration, right? Because right, summer in Luke and fall in the Psalms doesn't have quite the, same, quite the same ring to it, right? So I don't know what the name will be. I don't have a catchy name, but that's still the plan, right? Four to six weeks, kind of through, through some Psalms before we come back for a fourth section through, through Luke. All right. So ever, ever since, a few weeks back, I used, I used the Power Rangers in an introduction, right? Uh, Bob Coach, our, our live streaming guy back there, has been bothering me, like, and asking me, like, what am I going to use the Ninja Turtles in an introduction? Right. And, like, I always laugh it off because, like, like, there's no way I'd ever actually use the Ninja Turtles in an introduction. Like, how, how could I do that? Like, never going to happen. But I was wrong. Here we are. I have, a, I have a Ninja Turtles introduction for you. And like, when I first thought of it, like, I was almost mad. Right? Like, I don't want to use this, but it works. So here we go. And so for a while in high school, like, it was like this thing among my friends to, like, out of the blue, challenge someone to name all four Ninja Turtles. And almost without fail, like, the person being put on the spot would forget at least one of their names. Right? Just, you can't come up with all four real quick. Right? For the record... The names are Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, and Michelangelo. And if you know your art history, right, you recognize that those four names are four of the most famous artists of the Renaissance. For me, as someone who is not super into art history, I'm not going to tell you how old I was before I made that connection. Right? But needless to say, it's a lot older than it should have been. Maybe like even like art history class in college. Right? Right. But it raises one of life's big questions, right? which is, why are, some, why are these turtles, right, who also happen to be ninjas, 
named after a Renaissance artist? Like, and like, I know, like, those are the kinds of questions you come to church to have answered. Right? And so I have the answer for you. Actually, I have two answers, because they're kind of two different questions. Right? One question is, why did the original creators, the original comic book artists, name the turtles what they did? And they say, those artists, the original artists, say that they were originally going to name the turtles after, or give them Japanese names. But they're not being Japanese. They couldn't come up with any authentic-sounding names. But then they said, oh, but we're, we're comic book artists. We like art history. And so they just chose four artists that they liked from the Renaissance. And then in the, in the comic book itself, how the turtles got their name, right? here's the picture of the original comic that has like, the origins right there. I know you can't read that, but this is what it says. Right? So their, their adoptive father and kind of sensei, Splinter, he chooses their names. And in that top little box, he says this. He chose their names because he found a battered copy of a book of Renaissance art that he had fished out of a storm drain. And so that's where the names come from. I know you always wanted to know. There it is. And so from this point on, right, these turtles, they, they bond together brothers, they treat each other brothers, and they team up to beat bad guys. Right, but while the, the ninja turtles, like, they were generally got along, they teamed up to defeat evil. Right? The relationship between the actual Renaissance artists were often far less familial. Right? In fact, at times, their relationships devolved into little more than petty jealousy. Like, I don't know about you, but like, when I picture the Renaissance, like, I just picture like, all these like, dignified, above-the-fray kind of characters. Right? But that was not the case. In particular, the relationship between Michelangelo and Raphael was especially fraught. So Raphael is this painting called The School of Athens. And in that picture, there's, there's several famous Greek philosophers, right? So there's Plato and there's Aristotle and there's Pythagoras, but Raphael didn't know what those guys looked like, so he chose models. And he chose people he knew, right? So he he painted Plato, like the, the godfather of Greek philosophers, as having the features of Leonardo da Vinci. And he painted Aristotle, another one of the great philosophers, as having features that resembled Raphael himself. And then he painted this philosopher named Heraclitus with the features of Michelangelo. And you may be thinking, well, that's nice. He, he included Michelangelo in the picture. But here's what you need to know. Heraclitus' nickname was The Obscure. It was not a complimentary name. It's not a well-known guy. And Michelangelo later complained, with justification, right, that Raphael depicted him in that picture as a dirty, stinky old man. Then he'd go on, like Michelangelo later, accused Raphael of plagiarism, of stealing his ideas. And the root cause of all this conflict seems to be that Raphael, who was eight years younger than Michelangelo, had become the Pope's kind of favorite artist. They were both working in the Vatican at the same time, and Raphael became the favorite. Right? The irony, though, is that Michelangelo was feeling all these feelings of jealousy and inferiority. Right? He was feeling them while Raphael was painting the School of Athens, right? but at the same time, Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? which is like one of the most famous works of art of all time. Right? Michelangelo is jealous of another artist even as he's painting one of the most famous works of art in all of history. And here's, here's the point. Instead of focusing on the fact that both of them had a vital role to play, 
and the task of producing art for the Pope, right? a job like any artist at that time would kill for. They focused on each other and jockeying for position with the Pope. They lost sight of their role, their valuable role, and focused on each other. If that's not petty jealousy, I don't know what is. And in today's passage in Luke, we see another example of petty jealousy. And it comes from another group that, like the Renaissance artists, I tend to sometimes wrongly over-revere, in this case, the disciples. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you need one, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And as you do that, let me just remind you of what we saw last week. Last week we looked at Jesus' transfiguration, right? Where Peter and James and John saw Jesus transfigured and standing in glory. They heard God say, like, this is my son, listen to him. It must have been a truly magnificent experience. And all of what we're about to read this morning comes right after that incredible mountaintop experience. Let's read this passage together. Starting in verse 37. The next day, so right after the transfiguration, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And we'll, and we'll come back to this, but this is where the petty jealousy comes in. right? Jesus says, hey guys, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. And the disciples' response is, like, I don't know what he's talking about, and I'm too afraid to ask, so let's just argue about who's going to be the greatest instead. Just as Raphael and Michelangelo lost sight of the importance of their task, if they focused on each other, like the disciples were losing sight of the task of following Jesus, as they jockeyed for position as the greatest of the disciples. Continuing in verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. And of all the transition between stories in the book of Luke, right, I find the transition between the transfiguration and this series of stories to be maybe the most fascinating. Like, we start right, with the transfiguration, right, one of the greatest 
experienced this in all of human history. Like, the disciples see Jesus standing in divine glory. They hear the Father speak. And you would think, like, surely that like, must set up the disciple for a period of obedience and a series of success in following Jesus. But instead, as they come down the mountain, a series of events takes place that shows how far the disciples still have to go when it comes to following Jesus. First, they can't cast a demon out of a boy. Then they don't understand Jesus as he predicts his death, and they're too afraid to ask him about it. Then they argue about who's going to be the greatest, further showing their misunderstanding of Jesus. And finally, they get all jealous, not just of each other, but of others, and they try to stop someone who is doing ministry more effectively than they are. So Luke follows one of the most incredible experiences in human history, and he follows that with what can only be described as a comedy of errors. Like, it's easy to sit back and just like judge the disciples for their foolish mistakes and for their incompetence. But the same thing is kind of true in my own life. Like, I've had this incredible experience of Jesus saving me from my sins. And since then, I've had these moments of feeling incredible closeness with God, which seems like they should set me up for obedience. And yet I find myself failing over and over again, not doing the things that I know I should do. I find myself making the same mistakes, like committing the same sins time after time, not following Jesus as closely as I should. And like maybe you've felt that too. And if you have, I hope that this passage is an encouragement to you. I hope that you're encouraged that discipleship, right? the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, will always be a work in progress until we reach glory. It's never done. We, we don't have this one magic transformative experience where suddenly we have everything figured out and we proceed to perfectly follow Jesus for the rest of our lives. That's not how it works. Instead, we have, a, we have an encounter with Jesus. We confess Him as the Messiah, as the disciples did, and we have these moments of feeling utter closeness to Him, like Peter and James and John of the Transfiguration. But even with those moments, our life will still be one of constantly growing, slowly, step by step, to be more like Jesus. And there will be many failures along the way. But here's the encouragement. Even as Jesus sees the failures of the disciples here, He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't send them away. And that He corrects and He rebukes and He teaches in order to help them grow and to become more like Him. Just like we saw with Mary Magdalene in the video clip we watched. He welcomes us back, even in the midst of our mistakes. That's what I hope this sermon will do for us. This morning I want to consider four roadblocks we see in this passage that the disciples encounter and that we encounter as we go about trying to follow Jesus. Four things that get in the way of us following Jesus as well as we would like. And I hope that as we like, see the mistakes the disciples make, we will learn from their mistakes. We'll see their bad examples and we'll learn from them. And we'll be better equipped because of that to overcome and avoid the same mistakes in our own lives. So the first roadblock we see 
the disciples encounter is self-sufficiency. Of, of all the artists that the, the Ninja Turtles are named after, like, Raphael is probably only the third most famous. Like, like Michelangelo, certainly more famous. Leonardo da Vinci, certainly more famous. Donatello, I don't even know who that is. But, so Raphael's third. Right? And like, part of the reason Raphael was third, even though he was as talented probably as either Michelangelo or da Vinci, like, the reason he's third is because Raphael died at the age of 37. Whereas da Vinci lived to 67 and Michelangelo lived to 88. They just had more time to do more works. But Raphael's final work, and ultimately, like, really, like, the inspiration for all this talk about Ninja Turtles was this painting. And this painting is called like, The Transfiguration. And what I think, what I appreciate about this painting, it's a little bit hard to see up here, but, like, it does a really good job of portraying the contrast between Right, the glory that is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration, like at the top of the picture, and a contrast that with the trial and the turmoil that is taking place at the base of the mountain where the disciples are having a hard time failing to cast out the demon with the boy with seizures. And so there's just this contrast between the glory at the top of the mountain and the failure at the bottom. Right, that Jesus comes down the mountain from this moment of glory and almost immediately... He encounters this man begging for help, healing his son with a spirit that causes him to have seizures. And the man tells Jesus, verse 40, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And the question becomes, well, why, why couldn't they? Like, in verse 6 of so this very same chapter, we read that Jesus sent out the disciples, and the disciples healed people everywhere. And now here in verse 40, they can't heal this boy. So what happened in 34 verses where the disciples went from healing people everywhere to not being able to heal this boy? Jesus gives us the basic answer in verse 41 when he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. But the fundamental problem is that the disciples still didn't fully believe. Sure, they had their moments, right? But they also had moments of unbelief. And in Mark's account of the same event, he gives us a little more detail about why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. In Mark 9, 28, the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we drive the demon out? And Jesus replies, this kind can only come out by prayer. Just wait. Wait. So the disciples didn't pray before trying to cast out this demon? Why wouldn't they do that? And the implication seems to be that the disciples had had their moment of success in healing. Like they had done these great things, they had done all these great healings, and they quickly came under the illusion that they could do these things in their own power. And it's worth noting that when Jesus sent out the disciples and that first trip where they did all the healing, he sent them out in a way like, he made them consciously rely on God. He told them before sending them out, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. And the reason he did that is he wanted them to have a sense that they deeply needed God. They were deeply dependent on God for everything they went on that trip. 
And because they had that sense of dependence on God for material things, they also depended on God for the power to heal. But now here in this passage, removed from that deep sense of dependence on God, the disciples apparently are trying to heal in their own power. They aren't believing God. They're trying to be self-sufficient. And again, it's easy to sit back and think, silly disciples. But I'm so prone to do the same thing. When times are hard, or I'm placed in some situation where it's clear I need to depend on God, then yeah, I'm quick to run to God. I'm quick to depend on God in those hard situations. I'm quick to ask God for help. But as soon as things start to go well, as soon as things get a little easier, I'm real quick to give myself credit for making other things go better. I'm really quick to give myself all the credit for all the things that are going well, and it's really easy to forget my dependence on God. And this this phenomenon, it manifests itself in many areas of life. For the disciples, it manifested itself that they were trying to serve others. Instead of trusting God for the power and ability to heal this boy and serve this family, they tried to rely in their own strength. And we can do the same thing, right, when it comes to serving others. We try to muster up the energy and the ability to serve and care, care for and love others in our own power. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to work really hard to serve them instead of asking God for help in completing the task. We see this pattern in other areas of life as well. And one area is in, in fighting sin. We all have areas where we, we do things we know we shouldn't do. The particular details of the struggle may vary from person to person, but we all have areas of sin that we struggle with. So for you, maybe it's anger or laziness or lust or greed, or maybe it's some kind of addiction or selfishness, or maybe it's pride or jealousy. Like If you're like me, it's a combination of many of those altogether. And like usually like we want to get better. We don't want to struggle with this sin. We want to improve. We want to stop giving in to sin. But the question is, how? And often my answer is, I'm going to buckle down. And I'm going to work really hard in my own power to fight that sin. And then when I finally get it figured out, then I'll go back to Jesus. It's a lie that goes through my head. kind of tell the same thing with Mary Magdalene in the clip this morning. It's like, I can't bring my struggle with this sin to God. I need to clean up my sin. Then I can go stand before Jesus again. Jesus did so much for me by dying for my sin. Like I can't go to Him and admit that I'm still sinning. If I come to Jesus like this, He will send me away. We need to be a little bit careful here. Right? Because, like, to be clear, like, we do have a role to play in fighting our sin. We can't just sit back and say, well, this is who I am, and if God wants to change me, then He can change me. But this idea that God does the work of saving us at first, but then that it's up to us and our own power to obey Jesus, simply isn't true. Jesus delights to help us as we battle our sin, even when we fail repeatedly. Again, this idea, above all else, is why I think 
the book we're going to do for small groups, Gentle and Lowly, is so powerful and important. Like, it gets to the heart of this idea. At one point in the book, Ortland writes this, Christ did not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out to the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Trying to fight sin in your own self-sufficient power is a losing battle. The gospel is the message that Jesus willingly came to earth to die in order to defeat sin. Why would he not delight to help us overcome sin that he came to defeat when we run to him? Because you you fight sin in your own life. You see sin, see areas of weakness in your own life. Don't try to fight it all on your own. Instead, run to him for help. Let's not be like the disciples and try to do things in our own power. Instead, let's trust God to do what only God can do. That's what we see happen here. God does what only God can do. Jesus corrects the disciple for their lack of belief, and then he heals the boy. And everyone is amazed at his power. And then in verses 43 and 44, we read this. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to the disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Which seems a little bit like a a strange thing to say right after healing the boy. He does this great display of his power. Everyone's amazed. And the first thing he says is, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But the reason he does that, that Jesus wants to make abundantly clear that the most important thing about him is not his ability to heal or to do miracles or to cast out demons. That's not the most important thing about Jesus. The gospel is not about how Jesus can do miracles for us. The gospel is about Jesus leaving the glories of heaven, being born as a man, living a sinless life, yet still being delivered into the hands of sinful men, eventually to die on a cross on our behalf in order that we our sins can be forgiven if we trust in Him. That's what Jesus came to do first and foremost. Not cast out demons, but to forgive sin by dying on the cross. That was His mission. And He doesn't want that to get lost in the midst of His miracle. And so Jesus is very intentional in getting the disciples' attention here. He says, listen carefully. Like He says, he says hey guys, this is important. But the disciples don't understand Verse 45 says, But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. Like, I don't know about you, but like, the teacher says, Hey, like, pay attention. This is important. And then he proceeds to tell you something you don't understand. Like, maybe you should ask a question or two. But the disciples, they were afraid to ask him about it. And here we see the second roadblock to following Jesus. And I had a hard time like, knowing what to call this one, but eventually I kind of called it just self-centeredness. But we see the, the disciples' self-centeredness in two ways here. First, they don't understand what 
Jesus is trying to tell them because they have their own self-centered conception of what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Despite the fact that Jesus again and again tells them he's not the kind of Messiah they expect, they can't fathom that they're wrong. And so when Jesus tells them the kind of Messiah he's going to be, they don't understand. And then second, if they're so concerned about not looking dumb, about looking wise and understanding, that they they don't ask questions. Even though they don't understand something Jesus tells them, and he says, like, listen carefully to, like, they still won't ask questions because that might make them look bad and they don't want that reflecting on them. We don't have a lot of time to spend here, but there's two questions that I think are worth considering in light of these verses. One, like, the disciples, they misunderstood what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be and so they, they couldn't understand. And so the question is, like, are there things that Jesus clearly said, that Jesus said clearly, that we are slow to understand or obey because of cultural or self-centered expectations about how Jesus should act? Are there things Jesus said clearly that we don't understand because of some preconceived notion on our own mind? And the second question when I read something in the Bible or when I hear someone say something about God that I don't understand, do I seek out answers or do I just move on? And the disciples wrongly chose to just move on. And they moved on in the worst possible way. In verse 46, an argument started among them, among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. But Jesus just told them he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they didn't understand, but instead of asking follow-up questions, they, they get in an argument about which of them is going to be the greatest. Which brings us to the third roadblock of following Jesus, which is self-importance. Right? The disciples, like many of us, if we're being honest, right, are, are ego-driven self-glory seekers. They are so obsessed with their own importance and their own prestige that they don't even flinch when Jesus tells them he's going to be handed into the hands of men. They don't even... They just go right on to argue about who's going to be the greatest. But Jesus knows this about them. And again, instead of just sending them away, he knows he needs to break them of this. And so he gives them an object lesson. Verse 47 through 48. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. And the message is simple here. There are no unimportant people in the kingdom of God. Even a child who has nothing of practical value at the moment to offer is supremely valuable. None of us, none of the disciples, none of us are better or more valuable than anyone else. And earlier, a minute ago, I asked a question, like, are there things that Jesus says clearly that we're slow to understand because of the culture we live in? And I can't help but wonder if like, this is one of those areas. Like Jesus says, the one who is least among you is the greatest. 
But like we live in a culture that that celebrates achievement and that glorifies celebrities, that idolizes the uniquely gifted. And so at least for me, like it, it sure seems like swimming in that culture prevents me from really understanding this idea that the least are the greatest. In my in my weaker moment, right, the fact of the matter is I I want to be recognized as a good pastor, as a gifted preacher, as self-important. And I look at some of these kind of big-time pastors who are known for their gifted preaching or who have book deals. And while I don't envy some of the trials that come with their the territory, like I'm, I'm jealous of the adulation they get. Like my brain has been conditioned to think, like, that's the peak, that's the goal, that's what I need to strive for. If I believe what Jesus says here, then that's wrong. And like, just wonder, like, have you ever had the same thoughts? Or do you really believe that you're no more important, no more valuable than anyone else? Or conversely, like, if you're if you're not as physically able as you once were, you've you've fallen away from the peak of your profession, or you, for whatever reason, are feel less able than you once did? Do you really believe that you're no less important because of that? That that you are no less precious, no less valuable to God than you were at your peak? And you get rid of that self-importance. And the last roadblock to following Jesus is also kind of related. And again, I find... The disciples' reaction to something Jesus said is truly astounding. Jesus says, the least are the greatest. And the disciples' response is, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. And Jesus says, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. So like, Jesus says, clearly, like, hey guys, no one is more or less valuable than anyone else. Right? The, least, the greatest will be the least. The least will be the greatest. And the disciples' response is, yeah, but what about that guy? Like, he's not even on our team. Like, and the issue seems to be that the disciples, they, they want the glory of successful ministry for themselves. Right? They're more concerned with getting the credit for ministry than in ministry actually being done. Like they're more concerned with self-glorification than with people being healed. And their desire for this self-glorification is the fourth roadblock to following Jesus. Jesus' chief desire is to see people healed and to come to a knowledge of himself. But the disciples' chief desire is to get credit and glory for being healers and to be the ones who lead people to following Jesus. Like, I, I admit, like, by virtue of my role, like, I'm perhaps more inclined to feel this than other people, but, like, this punches me in the gut. Like, like if, if someone came here, visited, and, like, was relatively unimpressed by my preaching, and they kind of left unchanged, but then they went to a different church, and, they got super involved and they grew closer to Jesus and they like loved the pastor preaching. Like, I wonder, like, 
but I celebrate the ministry being done? Right? Or would I bemoan the fact that like, I didn't get some of the credit and the glory? And, like, I like to think, on my better days at least, that like, 90% of me would celebrate. But honestly, like, even on my best days, there would still be that 10% sliver that would cry out for some self-glorification, some credit, some jealousy. And like, well, my, my position is like a little bit unique in this regard. Like, all of us who are followers of Jesus are called to minister to others in one way or another. Right? So the question is, like, when you see someone having success in your area of ministry, do you celebrate that? Or do you get jealous that it's not you? Or conversely, when you see a different ministry being more successful than your ministry, do you celebrate that or do you get jealous? If we're following Jesus, if we're focused on Jesus, then our desire should be for Jesus to be glorified, not ourselves. And anything that leads to Jesus' glorification is worth celebrating, no matter what role we played in it. Like, and that's, the, that's the key with all of these. Right? With, with all of these roadblocks, the obvious common denominator is the word self. If we're going to follow Jesus successfully, but the key is getting rid of the focus on ourselves and shifting our focus to Jesus. Not long ago, in, in Luke, Jesus told the disciples that to follow him requires taking up their cross. The cross, an instrument of death. To follow Jesus, the self must die. We must put to death self-sufficiency and celebrate God's all-sufficiency. We must put to death self-centeredness and become Jesus-centered. We must put to death self-importance and acknowledge that everyone made in the image of God is equally important. We must put to death self-glorification and give our lives to seeing God glorified. The self must die if we're going to follow Jesus the way we're called to. As we, as we put the self to death, we cling to the promise. We cling to Jesus' words that whoever loses their life for me will save it. The question is, like, are you willing to lose your life? Are you willing to let the self die for Jesus in order to save your life and live the life we are truly made for? Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's so easy to focus on ourselves, to focus on what we want and what we can do, to take credit for ourselves for all the good things in life and then blame you for all the bad things. God, would you help me, help each of us little by little put our old selves to death so we can find new life in Jesus. We can live a life that's focused on 
centered on Jesus and glorifying you. That we know you're at work in each of our lives, that the process of discipleship will not be complete until we reach glory. We praise you that even after all you've done for us, you still welcome us to come to you with our sin. That you don't turn us away if we fail one too many times. That you welcome us to come to you for grace, come to you for mercy. God, just help us not lose sight of the fact that you are a gracious and merciful God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Help us trust that no matter how many times we fail, we can always run to you. You are slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love that you forgive. that truth and that freedom that comes from knowing our sin to forgive that compel us to live lives dedicated not to ourselves and our own glory but dedicated to you and your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. As we, as we leave here this morning, would you go in the process of putting the self to death so that you may follow and live for Jesus. You are dismissed.